My name is April Ashley, and you're listening to A Portrait of Excellence, the Gay Times Honours Podcast. The Roberta Cowell Gay Times Honour for Trailblazers goes to April Ashley. William, you met up with April at a favourite restaurant in West London. How was that experience for you? It was probably one of my most favourite experiences I've had. Model, author and activist known across the world for being the second documented person in the UK to undergo gender confirmation surgery in 1960, only to be outed as transgender in 1961 by the Sunday People newspaper. As a trailblazer for trans rights and having been served firsthand the difficult task of being outed by the press, April's life has been anything but an easy ride. However, the one thing that really touched me was her confidence and positivity in life that remains at the forefront of all that she does, including that of facing her own demons, as she explained to me about the difference in relationships she had with her father and her mother. I was very religious as a child, and I would say, Dear God, bless Mummy, bless Daddy, bless my brothers and sisters, and please let me wake up as a girl. And that used to be something that you would ask God every day? Every single day. Deep inside, there must have been a a want or a hope, or was there ever a, a, a glimmer of realisation that that, that that would happen? No, no. I, I just thought, you know, we have to trust in God. But, um, you know, you, you, when you, you haven't got intelligent parents, when you're living with parents, well, my, my father was never there, by the way, but when you're living with an ignorant woman who can't stand you, can't stand the sight of you, your brothers and sisters are embarrassed by you. You know, I go up to my brothers and when they'd all group together and say, can I come and play with you? And they'd turn their backs on me. And so it wasn't fun. Let's talk about the relationship that you had with your parents. You just mentioned them there. What was your relationship like with your mother? Absolutely horrendous. She hated me. For what reason? I don't know. She beat me so badly once that they threatened her with prison. Now that was something in those days, because the doctors came out and said, Mr. Jameson, if you touch this child again, we'll put you in prison, because we have found a hole in the back of this child, which we can put our thumb in and feel the spine. Can we talk about your relationship with your father, which was very different to the relationship that you had with your mother? Um, talk me through kind of what sort of man he was. Well. As I said, we didn't, um, we very rarely saw him, but he was a lovely, lovely person. I adored my father, and he was the only one who liked me, by the way. Having joined the Navy age 14, isolation and confusion already added to April's difficult life. Feeling so isolated and so totally unique, um, I suddenly saw all these gay boys, and one of them had a pot of green eyeshadow on each eye called Roxy and um, I thought oh these people are just the most marvellous people in the whole world and they took me under their wing and they looked after me and um, really I mean Roxy with the who used to mince up and down yeah. but some man knocked me to the ground and Roxy knocked him to the ground Wow. but there was a moment when I looked at them, this is over a period of a month or so, I looked at them 
and I saw a young couple coming who were so in love. And I thought, well, as much as I love the boys, I don't want to be like that. And I will never have that. So I jumped into the River Mersey. And um, then I was taken off to the most horrendous asylum in the whole of Bishires in Ormskirk, where you were tied to your bed, you were strapped down, you were only allowed one arm free to eat, and you were not allowed to eat with any English spoon. Every time you went to the loo, you had to be accompanied by two big men in white coats. You were not allowed to close the door. You know, it was all very degrading. And then opposite me was this creature screaming, and they were beating the daylights out. And I yelled at them to stop hitting this poor creature. You know, I said, stop it, stop it. And anyhow, so finally they said, well, if you agree to one year's treatment, we'll let you out. So, of course, I agreed immediately. And the treatment was to combat? What, what was the treatment for? To, to, to get rid of the idea that I would be a woman. When did you first look in the mirror and see that the feelings that you felt inside didn't match George that you saw looking back? Oh, when I was about one and a half, two. It's terribly confusing. It's terribly difficult. There's no one to talk to. There's no one you can ask advice about. You are alone in the world. And um, most extraordinary. And with that, April and I began to discuss the process leading up to her gender confirmation surgery. Well, I was lucky when um, I, I was sharing a house with all these gay boys, and uh, we were having outrageous times. You know, they were outrageous. One of them used to throw a wig on and go out and make twenty pounds and come back, which always fascinated me. I think. You make 20 pounds. That's a lot of money in the 60s, yeah. 50s, 60s. Yeah. They never told me. I was terrible. You see, I had this air of innocence too, which also was very extraordinary. And I say, well, you know, how did you do that? Just by threatening, because it's ugly of sin, this creature. Anyhow, um, one night we were giving a rock and roll party. And Somebody started putting all these scarves over the lamps to make them look pink so that we'd all look pretty, you know. And I said, you can't do that. The whole bloody place will go up in flames. <laughs> well, sure enough, it did. So somebody suddenly said, Okay, we've got to get out of here because otherwise we're going to be charged for all the damage we've done. Because the whole wallpaper went up. It wasn't, the flat wasn't damaged, just wallpaper. But by the same token, it looked horrendous. So somebody said, Oh, there's a last boat to Jersey tonight at midnight. Shall we all get on it? And we did. So we went over to Jersey and. Um, and again, I was very lucky because we had to pick potatoes and tomatoes to start off with, which breaks your back. Oh my God. And for 10 shillings a day. That was. But I was lucky. I was in the bar one day, and this lovely couple came up to me and said, Would you like to come and work for us in, a, in the Corbier Hotel? And I said, Oh, I'd love to. Anything to get out of those fields, you know, in the blazing sun. 
there you are picking potatoes and tomatoes and it's scorching down. So anyhow, I went out to the Corbier Hotel. It wasn't finished, there was only one room and I had that room. And so I had to get up in the morning, I used to cook breakfast for passers-by, lunch, dinner, and then do the bar all night. But it was wonderful because we made friends with the lighthouse keepers because the lighthouse is right there. And um, it was, I'd give these parties, people would put a ladder up. <laughs> and one night, and I put a sheet on, you know, rather like a Roman. And I stood at the top of the stairs and I said, Welcome, darlings. <laughs> <laughs> God, why I didn't break my neck, I'll never know, but I rolled down like a ball. And um, so I went off to the south of France as a holiday, as I'd made quite a bit of money for the summer season. And people kept coming up to me saying, Do you work at the carousel? And I said, No, what's the carousel? And then to cut a long story sideways, I met some friends that I knew from London. And they said, April, you don't know what the carousel is. And I said, no. And they said, okay, do you want to come back to Paris with us and we'll take you to the carousel? And I said, I would love it. So I went to the carousel and I walked in and, you know, glamour, lights, <laughs> camera, action, <laughs> coccinelle, bombing. I couldn't believe my eyes. Yeah. And so I went back stage. And I was taken in to meet the owner, Monsieur Marcel. And he said, well, and he was very funny, he said to me, well, he said, what do you do? He said, you, you know, you can't be a male you know, impersonator. You're too beautiful. And I said, no, it's the other way around. And he said, oh, he said, what do you mean? So I took out my passport and showed him, you know. He said, oh my God. He said, can you sing? And I said, no. I, he said, can you dance? And I said, no. He said, you've got the job. Come, go and get your things and come back as quickly as you can. And that's how I went to work at Paris, in Paris. That wow. was about 1957 or 58. And you continued there. Was that until you transitioned? Was that the... the yes. Okay. Right up until the last moment. And... Um, it, that was a, that was a very happy period in my life because we were meeting all the movie stars. We, Elvis Presley wanted to go to bed with me, but Colonel Sa the Colonel Sanders, I call him, wasn't allowed. But he sent me a bottle of champagne every night. Wow! He deflowered forty bluebell girls from the Lido in Paris because he was in Germany. You see, with the army but he hated Germany, so he came to Paris every weekend. <laughs> and he was so beautiful and so nice, and he kept calling me Mom. He very polite, very Southern. Oh, Mom, he said, you're so lovely. I said, yes, yeah, thank you, Elvis. You're nice. <laughs> and then I'd be sitting there with jean Pierre Fass, you know, an enormously wealthy woman. Her husband had been one of the great couturiers of Paris. And I'm wearing these pearls, real ones like knockers, you know, 
<laughs> this manager came in and said, hey, put my pals on you, let's go with my pals on them. And then we'd be in the cha-cha-cha, you know, and then we get paid to do that. And it was just amazing. Then we did a girls' tour of Italy mm-hmm. with Coccinelle. And by the way, they've just named part of a street after it. It's called Coccinelle, uh, Promenade de Coccinelle, Promenade Coccinelle. Okay. Which is lovely. Yeah. You can look that up on YouTube, by the way. <laughs> so that's amazing that somebody, you know, like uh, Coxie, who was so outrageous. Every movie star in France was petrified of her because in the 1950, early 1950s, she had enormous breasts. And when a premiere would happen, all the movie stars were there, you see, all the big stars of France. And if they saw Coxie arrive, they all knew their night was over because she would step out and she'd pull one side down of a dress down, out would pop a huge tit. <laughs> wow. And then she'd pull another top down, out came another tit. Well, tits in those days were a big... <laughs> Are they not now? <laughs> well, she's dead now. <laughs> oh, no, I don't generally. <laughs> but in those days, it was absolutely... That was it. All the cameras who had been on the movie started to <coughs> like that. She was wonderful. Coxinelle had gone off to Casablanca. Yeah. And she had the operation, you see. And I begged her for the address, and she wouldn't give me the address or the name or anything like that. Okay. But Kiki Mustik, who was her best friend at the carousel, was also a friend of mine. And one night Kiki came up to me, and he said, April, I think this is what you need. And he handed me a, a bit of paper. And I say he, because Kiki was one of those extraordinary people. He looked amazingly elegant and glamorous as a woman. But of course, when the show was over, off came the wig, off came the makeup. All these hundreds of people who'd been applauding him He'd walk past them with a little briefcase, little man, you know, going home to his wife and son. So Kiki gave me it. And I immediately got hold of Dr. Burrow, and he said, come as quickly as you could. So I did. And when, in those days, you walked across the tarmac, you know, you didn't have buses to take you out to the plane. You had to walk across the tarmac and climb up onto the plane, yeah. into the plane. <laughs> And there was this wonderful American dancer called Skippy. And they were all with me and people were saying, you can't go to Africa on your own. You, people will kill you, you know. It's North Africa, it's not safe. And I said, oh, for heaven's sake, I'm nervous enough. Shut up, you know, just leave me alone. But Skippy was wonderful. As I walked across the tarmac, this a lovely American voice shouted out, April. I turned around and he said, when you get back, I'm going to be the first, okay? <laughs> Look at your smile. <laughs> and sure enough, he was. Come, <laughs> come the 14th of July, Bastille Day. You even remember the date? <laughs> oh, I, I celebrate Bastille Day every day as a person. Thing. He took me, he knew my favorite aria was from La Boheme. We're in his garret in the rooftops of Pigalle. Yeah. And he's playing La Boheme. And uh, we made love. And I, and I started crying because I was so happy. And he said, what are you crying for? He said, come here. 
and he took me out to the window and of course you look down on the rupee girl <coughs> and of course Paris goes mad on that night people honking their horns there's balloons there's paper there's everything he said look the whole of Paris is celebrating the loss of your virginity <laughs> so, lovely moments in 1960, taking her life into her hands, April agreed to undergo gender confirmation surgery with a 50-50 chance of surviving. The operation really was life or death. Dr. Bray, I warned you that you were a guinea pig, that you could die. And indeed, I nearly did because of loss of blood. I lost a lot of hair. And... Um, he was terribly worried about me and even when I was leaving he said you shouldn't leave and I said well I've got to I said I've got I'm running I've run out of money and Dr. Burrow said don't worry about money and I said well you know I we have to I said because I don't want to go into debt with you and he said there'd be no debt he said I'd just like you to stay on because you're not well but I was my girlfriend, Julia Lockwood, who was the daughter of Margaret Lockwood, okay. she had flown out for the last week that I was there. And she was, said to me, well, darling, I can t come take you back to Paris if you want. But I have to get back to London because I'm doing Peter Pan. But she was doing Peter Pan at that moment. And so I said to Dr. Burrow, look, I, at least I've got someone to travel with. So I'll go with Toots, as she's called. And uh, so that's how we went. And, and, and that was horrendous because Air France had its first strike. So we had to circle Paris for three hours. What they, <laughs> and there's me. So I got back to the hotel and fainted. And Toots had to go immediately back to London to do Peter Pan. So, so, but then I, a few days later I went back to work, but then I fainted again. So Monsieur Marcel said to me, take a few weeks off. So I did. And then Sarah Churchill and Toots came to Paris and they said, you're no longer a female impersonator now. You know, you've got to come back to London. And so... I didn't want to leave because I was very happy with the people I was working with. Yeah. And it was very glamorous. And uh, I made marvelous money because I was paid like a star, you know. And um, so, but they persuaded me. And I was living with Toots. And when she finished the show at night, all the class would come back to her flat in Dolphin Square. And they'd all, she'd introduce me, you know, and everyone said, Toots, who is that incredible looking woman? She's so beautiful. <laughs> and so, Toots, just one day she suddenly said, Oh, April's model. And I thought, Hallelujah, that's what I can do. <laughs> so I got an agent right away. And that's um, how that started. Simple as that. I was reading your book and um, one of the lines that really stood out kind of on this topic was that you were never frightened that during your surgery that... No, because I knew if, if it wasn't a success, if it wasn't um, 
Okay, I didn't want to live any harm. I mean, I told Dr. Burr that. I said, don't worry, if I die, um, you know, I don't care, because I, I don't want to live in this world, um, you know, not being what I'm supposed to be. So there we so, And he, the photographs he showed you, if you had any doubt in your mind, you would have run a mile. Can we talk about the Sunday People? Uh, it's 1961, I do believe, when the Sunday People um, outed you as a trans woman. When you, yeah. As you said to me earlier, you became headline news for 10 days where you were the number one story. Yeah. Can you remember the, the place and where you were when you first heard that they were running that story? Yes, I was living in Emperor's Gate in South Kensington with another model. We were sharing a flat in Emperor's Gate with the Greek Orthodox Church there, you know, right in front of us. Um, she'd gone home for the weekend. She being? To her parents, the model I was sharing with. And um, suddenly there were all these press banging on my door, you know. They're saying, we know who you are, um, what's your name, and all this. And I wouldn't let them in. And they said, well, we're going to do it anyhow, and they did it. It was pretty scary, yeah. all these men banging on your door, you know. And you're all alone in this big flat, and um, it was in a big Victorian house, you know, you had a flat. And it was pretty scary, all these people screaming at you, all shouting different questions. And I knew the game was up, but um, I didn't think that I would have to pay such a price, but I did have to pay for that. But a lot of people knew who I was anyhow, you know, as I told you earlier, because Paris is so close to London. And a lot of people would recognize me from Paris, you know, because I had one of those faces that you don't forget. How much did the, out, the public outing from the Sunday people have an effect on your career? The six months of work that you had lined up, did that remain? Like a knife coming down. Bang. Your career's over with. No nonsense. And next day. Almost, it, and the reasoning for that was, did you ever find out? The reason was that you were an openly trans woman, they didn't. It was quite a thing in those days. You know, finished him overnight. I went into the office the next morning, as I told you, and Signon and Ingrid, they were crying and saying, you know, April, you can't even live in this country. You have to leave this country. And I had to exile myself forever. Uh, the Generation Recognition Act of 2004, you um, legally had your birth certificate changed to that of a female. In 2004, yeah. yeah. Can we talk about what that day was like for you? Do you, do you kind of remember what it was like to oh, find? Well, it was quite funny actually because um, I was with some people. Uh, I was living in uh, Provence at the time and uh, we were just getting ready for lunch and suddenly this envelope arrived and, then, and I opened it and there it was 
and everybody was thrilled and shouting, you know. And they said, come on, Abe, we're going to celebrate. I said, I'm not going to celebrate. I said, just let's open a bottle of champagne and just have a drink, which is normal. I did it every day anyhow. So, and I thought, they said, you're not going to go. You don't want to go out. You don't want to do this. You don't want to. I said, yeah. I said, just another day. It was a little late in the, t in the you know, 2004. I'd gone through it all. But who cared whether you got a piece of paper or not? I didn't. You know, I'd written to Tony Blair. Happily, um, I'd worked with Lord Prescott in the 1950s. With, uh, I ran a, the dining room and of a small hotel in St. Asaph in North Wales. And he was the sous chef. And they had to come out and go like this to show me their hat, that their fingernails were clean before I let them go into the kitchen. <laughs> so old Prescott never got over. He, he got hold of me. But he, th he thought he'd gone away to sea with me. And I, because you know, he was, he's very much into the Merchant Navy, still has a lot to do with it in Liverpool. And um, he was so handsome in those days. We used to go riding in the afternoon and up into the mountains together. But nothing, uh, nothing ever happened between us, you know, he was just a nice man. And I liked him very much. And um, I made him laugh at dinner when he opened my exhibition for me. I said, well, John, I said, you deck somebody because they threw an egg at you. I said, I would have done the same, but with a handbag. He <laughs> 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 just roared with laughter. <laughs> so, I mean, who gives anybody the right to throw things at people? It's like this awful business of acid at the moment. Mm. It's horrendous. Mm. Anyhow, don't let me put you off. I don't think after that I'll go driving nuts. <laughs> the last time I saw him, the l not two times I saw him, <laughs> was when the hospital rang up and said, you know, um, we have your father here, he's dying. And I went the next day. And I walked in and he was lying on the bed, looking very fragile, completely transparent skin jet black hair and, and he said oh darling I always knew and I said oh wonderful father how marvelous mm. and he held my hand very tight and he wouldn't let me go and then he fell asleep and then I left and the next time I saw him was when he was in a coma and I arrived my sister was sitting there my elder sister Teresa and I said, what's going on? And she said, nothing is not responding in any way at all. And I took his hand, and there was the most beauteous smile you've ever seen. And she was furious. And then I never saw him again. He died. Talk me through the sensation of, of the remark you made about, I always, I always knew when he said that to you. Kind of what he was referring to, but also what that felt like for you to have your father acknowledge that he was hateful. Well, it was almost as if I expected him to say that. You know. Why is that? Because he was such a wonderful person, and um, 
it, it, it did surprise me, but by the same token, you know, my father had such a generous nature, and uh, it surprised me that he said it. There's no doubt about it, but in a funny way, it didn't surprise me. I just thought, you know, he knew all along. Let's talk about societal attitudes towards uh, the transgender community in 2017. Um, is the level of acceptance and equality as when you looked forward as you might have Yes, hoped? but I think they're racing too fast uh, because, you know, um, I think it's, it's, it's becoming a little bit um, farcical because they should stop and think, you know. Um, to me, it's a little bit like those two young men who sued the Irish couple because they wouldn't bake a cake, um, you know, with two men on when yeah. they were getting married. They missed a fantastic opportunity of, of being, you know, very gracious and very lovely and getting enormous sympathy from the public. Instead of that, they sued them. Mm. And I think that people get annoyed at that. You know, so I think they missed an opportunity there. And I feel at the moment that the transgender business, but these sending children to school in a frock, it's trying to rub it into people. And all these loos, you know, do you want to go into a loo after, after a man? I don't. They never put the seat down. Uh, having spent the afternoon with you, the one thing that is really overwhelming, apart from your amazing glamour, which I'm completely in awe of, is the fact that you have a wonderful outlook on life. You're a very positive person. You have wonderful stories to tell, but everything is done with that positive angle, with uh, a great outlook on the world in which you live and that others live. Where does your strength come from? Liverpool. <laughs> one word answer. What? Oh, one word answer, that's it. Liverpool. Liverpool. One word. That's all you need. I'm always amazed at the strength of the Liverpoolian people. You know, when I, I saw a horrendous story about a family who'd lost a little boy who'd been shot dead in a car park. And the strength they show is extraordinary. And I think, you know, the Liverpoolian people are just quite, quite extraordinary. And finally, when people think of April Ashley, what are you hopeful that comes to mind? Well, I hope that they will remember that I always brought a bit of glamour into the room, that I was kind to as many people as I could possibly be kind to. Um, you know, that I always behaved in a very dignified way. And... Um, even when I was arrested for being drunk, I was very dignified because um, I didn't realize, I was being thrown out of a, a club one night because um, the maitre d' took against me. I didn't realize he'd been sacked from my restaurant, but he wasn't sacked by me. So he was a little so-and-so to me. And then this policeman, as we were in the dock of the court, was being absolutely revolting. And they stuck me in a male cell all night, by the way, even though they had my passport. And with great dignity, you know, he was saying to me, tell me your name, go on, tell me your name. And I said, you know something? 
I said, people like you go home and masturbate about people like me. I said, so go away. And I always heard that, you know, the last word, so to speak. But, you know, I've lived a life. I've tried to be kind to people and get on with people. And so I think if people think of me, they're going to just think, oh, well, she was quite extraordinary. I would think that's the word. Because I am. <laughs> The music for A Portrait of Excellence has been kindly provided by Lauren Flax. Head over to soundcloud.com forward slash Lauren Flax to hear more. Thank you to our sponsors, the National Portrait Gallery, British Land, the Federation of Small Businesses, Andaz, Absolute, Bloom Gin, Beach Blanket Babylon and Chappie for believing in the Gay Times Honours. A special thank you to Kaleidoscope Trust, our charity partner for the Gay Times Honours. Kaleidoscope Trust works tirelessly to uphold the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people internationally. Go and find out more about the Gay Times Honours in our show notes and at gaytimes.co.uk forward slash honours. <laughs>